You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome. Thank you for coming to the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the historian here. Um, and we are really fortunate today to have with us um, a remarkable individual. Uh, Robert Service is one of the world's leading scholars on Russia and the Soviet Union. He's currently a professor of Russian history at the University of Oxford, uh, where he's a fellow of, uh, Saint, at St. Anthony's College. And he's also a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. And I understand that gives him the pleasure of spending his, his summers frequently in Palo Alto, California. Uh, he's the author of some 12 books, including since 2000, uh, the year 2000, very well-regarded biographies of minor figures like Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky. And the book on Trotsky, in fact, won the 2009 Duff Cooper Prize. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that's a prestigious literary prize awarded annually for, best, for the best nonfiction writing. His latest book is Spies and Commissars, The Early Years of the Russian Revolution. That's what brings us here today. And it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, book and a fabulous read uh, about really, a, uh, to my mind, a very confusing time in which contend contending forces in Russia uh, were, were up to all sorts of really remarkable things. There's all sorts of fascinating stories in here with major personalities like John Reed and Paul Dukes and Sidney Riley. If you can explain Sidney Riley to me, I'd be deeply grateful. Uh, and... Felix Jarzinski and, and, and Lenin, of course. As some spy adventures are flashy and splashy, but, you know, not necessarily particularly uh, important beyond, you know, beyond themselves. This is not one of those. This uh, revolutionary Russia, 1917-1918, was a time in which major political clashes, uh, including military figures, political figures, and espionage figures, were really, in a lot of ways, setting European history for the next 75 years. So I think we're in for a real treat here. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Service. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. And thank you for coming today. I ought to explain that uh, I started this uh, project on spies and commissars in revolutionary Russia after um, decades studying the Russian revolutionaries themselves and coming to the conclusion that I'd not spent enough time on the relationship between Russia 
and the West that had, that had concentrated uh, on Russia to the exclusion of what was happening outside Russia. And the other thing that um, impressed itself on me was that I'd looked at the politicians to the exclusion of all the other interesting and influential figures on the revolutionary landscape, uh, such as journalists, uh, such as private travelers, uh, and uh, such as spies. And so the project as a whole is about the interrelationship between Russia and the West after the October Revolution of 1917, uh, and also of the, the relationship between these various communities of people who, who tried to interpret and to influence revolutionary Russia. And uh, it's not hard to imagine why this could grip anyone's imagination, because what happened in the October Revolution of 1917 was a challenge to the whole edifice of world politics and the world economy. Uh, the Bolsheviks seized power, and they said that they would rebuild their society uh, without a market economy and without uh, an elective political system. They also said that this transformation of Russia was just the preface to what they were going to do in the rest of the world. There was going to be a world uh, revolution. So that um, from the most unlikely of starts, this revolutionary regime threw down the gauntlet to the rest of the world. Uh, and it uh, did so in the most extraordinary way by saying that it would not participate in the biggest uh, military endeavor that humankind had ever witnessed to that date in millennia, namely the First World War. The communists said that they would withdraw Russia from the war. So this wasn't just a challenge for the medium and long-term future about world politics. It was also um, a challenge to the military short-term um, event which was gripping the whole of North America and Europe at the time. Um, the West's reaction was befuddlement. What on earth was it they to make of these fanatics who had taken power in Petrograd when those same fanatics themselves did not expect necessarily to last very long because of the fragility of their grip on the sympathies of the very people over whom they sought to rule. So that Western leaders thought initially in the winter of 1917 to 1918 that they ought to bide their time and not overreact and perhaps persuade the communists not to carry out their threat to withdraw the Russian forces uh, from the Eastern Front which would have an enormous impact on the Western Front at a time when American forces had not yet arrived on the European uh, mainland, and the Germans stood a, uh, a pretty decent chance of winning the First World War. And the diplomats who were in Petrograd, then the uh, Russian capital, busied themselves 
with trying to make, to, to make overtures to the communists without recognizing them officially because they weren't uh, a recognizable government. They had offered a challenge to the Western powers, so why should the Western powers uh, recognize them? On the other hand, if the Western powers took no notice of them whatsoever, there was the danger of pushing them into the hands of the Germans. So the rather elderly, uh, not too well informed, uh, French, British, and American diplomatic services sought to make the best of a very, very difficult situation. And if you look at the, uh, the British ambassador of the day, Sir George Buchanan, um, he'd been there for years. He didn't speak a word of Russian. Uh, typical British auteur. Um, didn't see the need to plunge himself into local circumstances and get his mind uh, immersed in them. The, uh, the American ambassador was only a little bit better, George Francis. He hadn't really wanted to be the ambassador in the first place. He was a, a St. Louis banker, a bit of a womanizer, great golfer, but certainly not a Russian expert. But for all of their um, distance from the communists, these two men were surprisingly perceptive about the nature of the basic threat that threatened, uh, that menaced uh, the Western world with the uh, accession to power of the communists in the October 1917 revolution. Their, their, their reports stand up really quite well as... Um, summary um, um, reports on the chaotic revolutionary circumstances that followed the revolution. Um, it was an extraordinary diplomatic scene altogether because in December 1917, at the time when the British and the French were fighting the Germans on the Western Front, the Bolsheviks allowed a German diplomatic mission to set itself up in the Russian capital. And in order to rub in the noses of the French, they placed the German embassy on the very same street as the French um, had their residence at. So that diplomatically, this was a, a struggle in Petrograd, which the Bolsheviks quite enjoyed in as much as they thought that the, the Western allies would be so chewed up with rivalry with each other as to be less of a threat to them uh, at the time. Uh, it was a, a time when it was difficult to get information out of Petrograd except through these embassies and except through the intelligence uh, networks because this was a time when the Germans were still sinking, uh, sinking uh, naval vessels with their submarines in the North Sea. They had blocked off the Baltic Sea. They had blockaded the Baltic Sea. And it was a very, very difficult thing for ships to get round the top, round through to the White Sea and to Archangel and Murmansk. Uh, 
so that the information that was coming to the West from Russia was coming from the diplomatic and intelligence uh, communities in Petrograd. And in this very difficult situation, over the winter of 1917 to 1918, the information was of a, of a high quality but the danger was increasing because the Bolsheviks were being pushed so hard by the Germans to sign a separate peace treaty, which in fact they did at Brest-Litovsk uh, at the beginning of March 1918. And then the whole situation changed because the Western Allies from that point on, and this was a time when the first American troops were arriving in France, the, they were desperate to withstand the last German offensives on the Western Front, and they knew now that the Russians would not re-enter the war if the Bolsheviks stayed in power. So they had to have a strategic review of what they uh, might achieve in this extraordinary revolutionary uh, country. Now, over here in America and over in uh, Western Europe, uh, there were very few Bolshevik agents. Most of the spying that went on, most of the reporting that went on, most of the politicking that went on, went on in Russia. The Bolsheviks had too much on their hands to spend a lot of energy uh, in setting down roots in the countries of the Western Allies. Uh, they did have an agency in New York, um, oddly called the Finnish in uh, Information Bureau, which did a lot of the work of Lenin and Trotsky for them. They were Finns who, who uh, had a lot of sympathy with the communists. And in London, there was the man who later became the foreign minister of Joseph Stalin, Maxim Litvinov. And he had a sort of um, entree into the literary world through his wife, who was a British novelist, uh, and also to the political world. He visited 10 Downing Street, for example, uh, went to lunch there. Um, he was going around then political London and literary London he couldn't go back home because the British didn't give him a visa to cross the North Sea to make trouble in Russia, which they didn't want to happen. So he made trouble in London instead. But this is pitifully small uh, activity in comparison with what the Western Allies were doing in, in Russia at the time. Most of the, the subversion that was going on was the subverting of re revolutionary Russia by the Western Allies. At least that's the conclusion that I came to. The Western embassies, however, still needed to keep some kind of contact with the Bolsheviks just in case their policy really did change and they might, at a push, re-enter the Great War. So um, oddball characters, such as the American Red Cross's um, Raymond Robbins, or the special emissary of David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, Robert Bruce Lockhart, 
were sent out to uh, Petrograd and given semi-freedom to go their own way and make friends with Lenin, uh, make friends with um, Trotsky. Um, another person who went out there who was a, an, uh, an informant for the uh, Secret Intelligence Service, the British Secret Intelligence Service, was the children, children's author, uh, Arthur Ransom, Agent S76. Um, all of these people uh, were allowed to cut themselves loose from the embassies and act as intermediaries between the Bolsheviks and the Western Allies in the desperate hope that perhaps the Russians might, after all, be pulled back into the wall. Uh, at the same time, there was uh, real intelligence work going on. Um, the, even the American intelligence agency was getting going by this time. It's fair to say that in 1917, the French and the British had the more ac active of the intelligence agencies in Russia, and that... Um, the Americans had uh, a much weaker force. But they had some very dynamic individuals, such as the rather oddly named Xenophon Kalamatiano, who um, ran uh, a big network in northern, central, and southern Russia. And then, of course, there was the British agent, Sidney Riley, who was uh, mentioned uh, earlier. People like Kalamatiano from America, or Sidney Riley from Britain. Both of them, by the way, had uh, Russian backgrounds, family backgrounds. People like this uh, were handing over funds to the anti-communist forces, to the white forces, to the Orthodox Church, to almost anybody who might actively try to bring down the Bolshevik uh, government. So quite large sums of money in very odd ways, at least they were odd to me before I started reading uh, about what intelligence agencies get up to. These monies reached the anti-Bolshevik forces in the summer of 1918 at a time when the Germans were making their big last offensive on the Western Front and it looked as if it was sensible to try to do something about um, the Bolsheviks. In the autumn of 1918, uh, this is something that I discovered while writing the book and wasn't expecting to discover. Uh, there's always been controversy about what the British got up to in the autumn of 1918, and they have all, always denied, and they still do officially deny, that they never sought to subvert the Soviet government directly by a coup d'etat. But the material that I found in uh, Stanford University in the papers of Robert Bruce Lockhart prove, I think, conclusively that there was a deliberate effort to employ the Latvian riflemen. Now, these were the Praetorian Guard of the Soviet government at the time, and it was a weak Soviet government, and they had responsibility for guarding the Kremlin itself. And the British tried to buy them up, and at least caused so much trouble in Moscow that perhaps the government might uh, be brought down. 
So that in that last autumn, before the end of the First World War, one Western government um, made a very... It was really the last effort to bring down the Soviet government until the Soviet government brought itself down at the end of the 1980s. It was the last serious effort to bring down the Soviet government within the first year of Soviet power. Well, then the First World War suddenly ends in November 1918, and the whole picture has changed. Because until then, the Western allies had only wanted to um, change Russia because Russia had reneged on its obligations to the military alliance which it had contracted in 1914. But now there is no war. What are the Western allies going to do about the Russian question? Well, one thing they are certainly not going to do is prop up the Soviet government. So they decide to release funds to the white armies which were fighting the communists. Uh, they seek to get guarantees that the white armies will um, introduce democracy, um, national tolerance, um, a, a fair system of justice. Um, whether that would have happened in the event of a white victory is very doubtful. But this was the best deal that uh, Woodrow Wilson, Winston, um, David Lloyd George, and Georges Clemenceau could extract from the whites at the time. And they withdrew their embassies entirely from Russia, from central Russia. They indeed withdrew their intelligence networks because they'd been broken up. Kalamatiano was languishing in a Moscow prison. Bruce Lockhart was whining and dining himself in uh, the Savoy and at the Ritz in London. He was, a, he was the lucky one. He got out. Sidney Riley was doing the same thing with Robert Bruce Lockhart. The intelligence networks were withdrawn from the very dangerous red territory of northern and central Russia. And the Allies imposed an economic blockade. They thought that this was the best they could do to squeeze the life out of communism in Russia. What surprised me while doing the research was how astute the Americans, the British, and to some extent the French were in gaining intelligence by new ways, particularly by the telegraph system. The, we're all used to nowadays, particularly the, the British are used to, stories of hacking, phone hacking, uh, email hacking. Well, the intelligence agencies of the period we're now talking about, 1919, 1920, these people were really dynamic and quite brilliant in getting battle plans, uh, 
in getting information about new appointments to the Bolshevik Party, the Communist Party, or to the Red Army, to, to getting all manner of basic strategic and tactical information, um, th simply by uh, very cunning intercept work. Um, they also liaised with the White Armies. And the White Armies, because they had lots of Russians willing to volunteer for this very dangerous work, they sent their men into the uh, areas such as the Western Allies had now withdrawn from. So this was a period where actually there was a great deal of intelligence collected through the cooperation between the White Armies and the Western governments uh, and some of the defectors who had left the intelligence service of the Tsar and had joined the intelligence services um, in the West. So that contrary to my uh, assumption, I found that actually the, 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 Reds, the Reds were known about. The West knew most of the big things that it needed to know about the communists without having any secret agent in the Kremlin or, 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 any, or, or anything uh, like that. This was a war then, a civil war, where both sides knew quite a lot about each other, both from open and from secret uh, sources. And that really did surprise me. In, um, uh, um, uh, well, yeah, it really shook me to find um, um, how, how much of what we think is a very, very modern uh, contemporary thing, hacking of information, actually um, was the norm uh, on the Russian question in these years. From the other side, the Russians, once they'd won their civil war at the end of 1919, they started to penetrate the West much more systematically than they had been able to do uh, until that point. So they started sending over agents of the Cheka, which was the forerunner of the uh, KGB, but much more subversive than that, much more in intensive than that, was the activity of setting up communist parties. That was a way of getting active volunteers in all of the big countries of the post-war world. And they did this with a great deal of imaginativeness. Um, it was often difficult to get their agents out. Um, uh, no country apart from Switzerland would give diplomatic recognition of any kind and apart from uh, the Scandinavian countries to Soviet Russia. So they had to send out representatives in disguise and of course, every Russian leaving Russia had his suitcase very carefully um, inspected. So what did they do? They used as couriers, especially women. And they got the jewels of the Tsars and the aristocrats. And the women wore them round their necks, round their um, wrists. And when they got to the West, they sold them. So the money got out. John Reed, for example, uh, he took out over a million rubles in 1918, always claiming that he was up to 
nothing but innocent political purposes. His wife acted as a courier uh, for the Bolsheviks too. These two Americans took out um, very, very large sums of money to help found American communist parties. And the same sort of thing happened all over uh, Western Europe. Newspapers were subsidized if they would take a pro-Soviet line. Didn't matter what else they said about politics, but if they took a pro-Soviet line, they could get Soviet money. The Daily Herald in London received money uh, um, in this sort of way. And the blockade started to be broken. Uh, firstly, through Estonia, which had belonged to the Russian Empire before 1917. The Estonians gave their port of Tallinn over to communist traffic um, in return for um, a financial uh, arrangement. Uh, the Swedes were particularly keen to um, effect a rapprochement with the communists uh, and to make money. Swedish industrialists, Swedish finance houses, uh, acted as economic intermediaries for the Russian trade with Britain, with Germany, and to some extent with America too. So that uh, the communists started at this point, at the end of 1919, beginning of 1920, to break out of the political, diplomatic, uh, and... Um, economic clamp that had, been, that had been pressed on them. And in the following year, in the following year, 1920, there was a huge controversy over West, all over Western Europe and America as to whether, in fact, it was hopeless trying to uh, pursue a policy of isolating Soviet Russia until Soviet Russia fell. And uh, a British Labour Party delegation went out to uh, Moscow and to Petrograd to interview Lenin and Trotsky to see if really they were the demonic figures that they were portrayed as being in the Western um, press. At the very same time, the Bolsheviks showed that they had kept their fanaticism by bursting across the western borderlands of the old Russian Empire, crashing through what's now Belarus, Lithuania, into Poland, with a, with a view towards bursting forward still further and uh, making not only Poland communist, but Germany too. And at that point, the remnants of these old intelligence networks, for example, Paul Dukes, the British um, uh, agent who's been quite justifiably claimed as uh, some kind of model for James Bond. Such were his uh, exploits of daring do. Or, or for example, the American, uh, uh, Marion Cooper, the man who later became very famous uh, all around the world as the producer of the, of the film King Kong. He volunteered as an aviator for the Polish um, Air Force. It was basically uh, an American Air Force in 1920. The Poles didn't have an Air Force. Um, 
these remnants of the political and intelligence and diplomatic resistance to communism in 1918, they went for one last hurrah to stop this red tide, this red military tide sweeping across Eastern Europe and into uh, Central Europe. And in, in, and in fact, the Poles more or less did it for themselves uh, with a certain amount of Western assistance. The communists were stopped at the gates of Moscow. Indeed, they were stopped before they crossed the uh, River Vistula. And so the question then arose again, what do we do? Do we accommodate ourselves to something that Winston Churchill, uh, with great percipience, um, early on in the uh, proceedings, had identified as a fundamental threat to the, the Western democratic uh, way of life? Do we accommodate ourselves to it? Um, or do we continue to resist it? And as a British patriot, I have to say that my own country doesn't come out well of the account at this point. Because at the very moment when peasants were revolting against Soviet power, when workers were going on strike against Soviet power, uh, when the Kronstadt naval garrison was mutinying against Soviet power, David Lloyd George, uh, with very significant opposition from within his own cabinet, moved forward to sign the Anglo-Soviet Trade Treaty of March 1921, at the very time when the Kronstadt sailors were being butchered by Trotsky's uh, Red Army. It's a very, very sorry, a very, very sorry story. And the resistance to communism at the time was very, very bitter about the way that the British broke ranks with them and broke ranks with their own allies, the French uh, and the Americans, and made things easier for the survival of the government led by Lenin and Trotsky. It's a very, very complex uh, story, but essentially, underlying it all, it's a very simple one. There was a very, very difficult situation for leaders in the West to handle at a time when their countries were saying, let's, we've won the war, let's forget about what's happening uh, in Russia. It was all too tempting to say, well, eventually these people will overthrow this appalling totalitarian despotism that Lenin and Trotsky uh, are setting up. They were wrong. They were wrong. The Soviet regime, the Soviet administration consolidated itself, confirmed itself, and turned itself into one of the most uh, appalling despotisms of uh, the middle of the 20th century. So that these Western leaders who um, didn't take this seriously, they had good reasons to think that there were other things that they ought to sort out first. But they were wrong. Uh, they had a chance to do more than they did, and they failed to take it. It's understandable why uh, they didn't take it, 
But the history of the rest of the 20th century shows that men like um, Winston Churchill and Herbert Hoover, who had, who had pointed out time and again that a fundamental threat existed to the whole Western way of life, these men saw something that the other Western leaders failed to perceive. Thank you very much. That's a, I mean, that, that's a really good question because um, I presented it in terms of the, the worst-case scenario. Uh, and the worst-case scenario was something that certainly Winston Churchill and Herbert Hoover uh, were pushing in 1918 to 1919. It is possible to imagine that the, that the communists um, might have taken a... A, a more gentle way of handling their society and have, might have stepped back from ideas about uh, world revolution. Um, but the idea of a sort of communism with a human face, I, it, do, it doesn't really seem to me to be very plausible. And I'll tell you why I think that. Most peasants already hated the communists. Uh, the communists took away their religion, they took away their villages, they took away their grain. Um, workers felt that they'd expected a bit more from the communists uh, than starvation wages. Um, so their natural supporters in this early period were actually their antagonists. And in, in those circumstances, I can't see how Lenin and Trotsky would have done anything other than say, okay, if you don't like us, if we can't get your sympathy, you're going to get our suppression. So, I, I mean, you're right. Nothing, nothing's impossible. But I, th I think dictatorship was built into the genes. It was sewn into the... the um, the, um, it was implanted into the genes of early... It's not an accident that totalitarianism comes out of this, this period. Paris Commune in, in 1870-71 as having occurred because the Reds yeah. there were insufficiently yeah. bloody in, in dealing with their opponents? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're totally right. And when, and when Robert Bruce Lockhart um, uh, failed with his attempted coup d'etat in autumn 19... 
18, and he was arrested and eventually deported. He's very lucky that he was deported because um, a death sentence was passed on him just a few weeks later. Um, the, the British diplomatic representatives talked to um, the uh, representatives of Lenin and, and uh, Trotsky. And some of the communist representatives said to Lockhart, well, you know, things could be so much different if you British and you French and you Americans went a bit easier on us, if you were just a wee bit uh, uh, gentler. Lenin's really not very fond of um, the techniques of repression. But we know from the same material that when he spoke to the Cheka, to the thing that became the KGB, in the same week, Lenin was saying to these Czechists, be fierce, be ruthless, suppress, oversuppress if necessary, rather than let a single enemy of Soviet power uh, survive. So he was an enthusiastic uh, exponent of the techniques of uh, repression. He had, he, you're absolutely right. He had learnt lessons from history. He thought that not using force was a, was a mistake. If you could take David Lloyd George's part, just for a minute, before the crucial signing of the trade pact, what would his reasons have been and how did he make that trade-off that turned out to be critical? Well, David Lloyd George was um, thinking a number of things. He was a very, very devious operator. I must say, personally, I've found him an attractive figure before I started um, looking at what he did on, on Russia. Um, he thought that um, he was... Uh, governing a country that was destitute. Britain was broken by the Great War economically. It was still a great empire, but it was nearly bankrupt. Uh, he had to restore trade. The Russian trade was one of the big earners for the British economy before 1914. Uh, you have to bear in mind, of course, it's very easy to forget this, that the Russian economy was the breadbasket of the European economies. It supplied wheat, oats, all sorts of cereals to the whole of Europe before 1914. It was Stalin who ruined the agricultural sector in, in, um, uh, in the 1930s. So, I mean, Lloyd George thought Britain needs economic recovery, and he thought, if I move fast, I'll beat the French and I'll beat the Americans to it. I'll break ranks. And he also had, to be fair to him, he had another thought. He thought that if Russians see that the market economy, that private trade, can better their circumstances quickly, more effectively than the state economy that Lenin and Trotsky were offering to them, this would strengthen the influence of um, those who sought to effect some sort of reform 
of the system, coming back to your question. Uh, so he thought that in the end, the, the, the politics of economic rapprochement uh, with Soviet Russia would sound the death knell of communism. It, he was totally wrong, but it was an un understandable mistake. Actually, it was a mistake made by Western leaders in the 1930s. I mean, who made the big automotive plants in um, Stalin's USSR in the 1930s? Um, who supplied the expertise? There were thousands of American engineers there in the uh, middle of the 1930s. They, they went there with the consent of the government. So this, the, the, there's a, there are decades... There are decades of, of, of mistaken strategic thinking in the West. Um, the, the British were the, were, were the first culprits, but the Germans weren't far behind at the end of the 1920s, and then the Americans after them. I mean, this, this helped Stalin set up the totalitarian system. I'm, I'm afraid it's not a... It's not a. It's not a worthy. It's not a worthy record. Uh, obviously, I haven't read your book yet. <clears throat> did you do any re in your research? Did you come across anything on Russian military? You'd mentioned in Cheka. Yeah. Did you, did you come across anything on Russian military intelligence or? Soviet military intelligence established in eight, 1918. I came across a lot of Russian military intelligence, which I've, I've got in the book, white Russian military intelligence. They had um, uh, an organization called Azbuka, which in Russian means ABC. And Azbuka was very, very effective at, at gathering information, and a lot of that information was passed to the British, the French, and the Americans in return for um, um, intelligence that they themselves had, had gathered. So there was, a, there was a very, very collaborative system of intelligence uh, gathering. Um, and I came to the conclusion that one way or another in, in the Russian Civil War, the Western countries and the whites, the Russian whites, knew most of what they needed to know about the big questions of politics and military disposition. The Reds, the Reds had a good military intelligence system that they destroyed. They didn't trust the, the code specialists that they inherited. And the code specialists didn't trust them. One of them, for example, Ernst Fetterlein, he defected to the British in 1918. And he became a very significant help to the British in the 1920s and 1930s as well. So the, the, the communist military intelligence system started from a low base. It had to learn, learn the tricks of the trade uh, from experience. But it had one advantage, and that was that before 1914, these communists 
had emigre communities in Germany, France, Britain, America. They had, they, they had got techniques of counterintelligence to stop spies being sent by the governments to ferret out uh, what was going on in these subversive communist organizations. So they built on that extremely quickly. I, I mean, it's quite impressive how, how quickly the Soviet um, intelligence community starts to become an effective agency of um, revolutionary subversion. Um, so on both sides, um, there's a lot, a lot going on. I understand there's uh, some controversy about uh, Sidney Riley as to whether he was a, a double agent or not. Yeah. And also, do you know about what his demise was? Was it in Russia? Was he killed in Russia? Yeah. Well, Sidney Riley. I have read letters um, of Sidney Riley. He was certainly an enigma. He was a rascal. He was a scoundrel. He was a known scoundrel. When the British intelligence people took him on, they were warned by the intelligence offices in Washington and New York, don't touch this man. He's, he's bad news. Um, but the, the British intelligence um, service needed Russian speakers, and there weren't very many of them. They tended to have a soft spot for eccentric, risk-taking scallywags. And some of them, like George Hill, were quite remarkable. Uh, men who had never seen an intelligence community, um, had never had anything to do with the intelligence community before 1917, and, and quickly um, integrated themselves into it and had the Russian language skills. Or someone like Paul Dukes, what had he been doing before 1914? He had been uh, working as a pianist in St. Petersburg, training the ballet and the opera uh, uh, stars uh, for, for the various performances but he had brilliant Russian so the British took risks with, with people and they really took the huge risk with Riley I always say he wasn't a double agent he was a single agent and he was an agent for Sidney Riley uh, so that um, I have no evidence for this but I bet you a lot of that money that he was carrying all over Moscow uh, in, in the summer of 1918, found its way into Sidney Riley's pocket. In 1919, when the British intelligence network was wrapped up, Sidney Riley went back to southern Russia. He was looking for commercial opportunities. He was writing back to the British government saying, you should get stuck in here. When the Reds lose the Civil War, this place is going to be open for commercial exploitation. The French are doing it. The Americans aren't yet doing it. The British aren't yet doing it. They should be doing it. So he had an eye to the commercial. He lived, he lived the life of Riley. He was, I mean, he was known as, um, you know, he stayed at the Savoy Hotel. 
He wore a red rosette every day that he bought from St. James. He was, it wasn't as if um, he was a sort of, um, he was a bit like James Bond, you know. What, I mean, James Bond never disguises what he's up to, does he? He's always walking around in a, a tuxedo and uh, 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 with, with a couple of dolly birds on his arm and so on. Well, Sidney Riley had about five dolly birds on his arm, um, whatever the country he was in. Um, I think that uh, he, he acted for the British, uh, but he acted more for himself. I don't think he was a double agent. He may, though, have... He may, though, have said things to the communists that um, uh, were useful to them because he also had a lot of chutzpah. Uh, I mean, who else would turn up as a British agent in the middle of 1918 um, and go straight to the Kremlin and say he wanted to write an account of the... Uh, Russian revolutionary regime, could he have a personal interview with Lenin? I mean, this was a man who was brazen, uh, a chance taker. But my, my, I came to the conclusion that he, he was a single agent, and that was an agent for himself. I think he was anti-Bolshevik, anti-communist, but he was good time Riley. He wanted to enjoy himself, and he was a fool as well. When he went back to Soviet Russia, he didn't take the precautions he should have taken, and I think he really was shot in the middle of the 1920s, and he, that, he, that he died a very gruesome death. He was a friend of Bruce Lockhart, Robert Bruce Lockhart, and Bruce Lockhart never said a word against him, but his wife did. The stuff in the book about this, that the, 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 the C, the head of the British intelligence um, service, C, uh, said, we've got to find out what Riley's really up to. Is he one of them or is he one of ours? And they decided that there was no point in asking Lockhart because Lockhart was a bit of a dubious character himself. And the two of them were chums. So what uh, C did was send someone down to a very expensive restaurant and asked Mr. and Mrs. Lockhart. But they asked Mr. Lockhart half an hour after Mrs. Lockhart. They deliberately got Mrs. Lockhart there early for the lunch. And they said to her, Jean, just tell us off the cuff. Um, we're, we're pushed for time. Um, what, what do you reckon of Sidney Riley, and what does Robert, what does your husband Robert think of Sidney Riley? And before she uh, could stop herself, she said, "Well, you know, he he doesn't trust he doesn't trust Riley at all." And so from that point on, um, the British secret intelligence network was very very careful about how they used Riley, and Riley was furious with this. He thought that he'd been set up. But actually, what had happened was Mrs. Bruce Lockhart had, had said something she, she wasn't meant to say. It, it's all in the book. 
if I could just footnote this, uh, in the museum there was a re fairly recent donation. And one of the few sort of physical links between Barford and Riley is a very lovely cigarette case from Riley, described from Riley, to Bruce Barford. Wow. So it's in the red chair room. I'll take you down. Oh, great. Before you go. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, uh, we're not going to get enough of you, I'm afraid. All right. Well, Robert Service, what a wonderful question. Thank you very much. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.